Keep your Bibles right where they're at. Uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 will be the text for this morning. We are very quickly ending our, nearing the end of our series in Ephesians. Um, so we're getting close. We have basically two more sections to cover. Uh, and that's, of course, if the Holy Spirit doesn't intervene uh, with the plans that I have, and he changes it up and extends that a little bit. But for the most part, we have two left. We have the believer's warfare, and that's uh, verses 10 through 13 here in chapter 6. And then we have the believer's armor, and that's verses 14 through 24, uh, although 24 has to do with Paul's final greetings. But we'll deal with that stuff next week, Lord willing. Before moving forward, though, into this text, um, I, I think it's important for us to go back a little bit to reestablish the context, because I, I'm not sure that um, where we're going to be here for the next two weeks, I'm not sure if it makes the kind of sense that it needs to make if we don't understand where we've been. And so it makes, let's put it that way, it makes much more sense if we know where we've been. So just a, a little review, but chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians are doctrinal, okay? They basically tell us who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. You know, we looked at all of these amazing doctrines, the doctrine of election and, you know, redemption and forgiveness and these sorts of things. So chapters 1, 2, and 3 are really doctrinal. They tell us who we are and what we have in Christ. And even in chapter 1, verse 17 through 22, Paul prayed that God would give the Ephesians and all believers the ability to comprehend and understand all of the doctrines that he lays out in chapters 1 through 3. I mean, he literally, it's like he's, you know, we, we get done with uh, what we're in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which is really a doctrinal survey. It talks about all that Christ has done for us and what we have in him, inheritance and everything. And then he pauses to realizing that, obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, okay, so the Ephesians need to not just read out loud what I'm saying or what the God is revealing to them, but they need to believe it. They need to understand and comprehend these things, what has been said about themselves and what they have. Because obviously, if you don't understand who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ, you're going to have difficulty living out that calling. So then you get over to chapters 4, 5, and 6, and they have to do with living out the doctrines, or what Paul calls in chapter 4, verse 1, walking in a manner worthy of your calling. So it's like chapters 1 through 3 have to do with this is who you are, this is what you have, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 have to do with, okay, so here's how you live that stuff out. Here's how you live in light of redemption. Here's how you live in light of your inheritance. Here's how you live in light of, of your election and all these things that God has so graciously and mercifully done for us. And then we get to chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, where Paul begins by telling the Ephesians, as we've already heard as Paul read, Paul Rogers read, he begins by telling the Ephesians and all believers to be strong in the Lord and to put on the whole armor of God. And if you noticed, he begins this new section with the word finally. Why did he tell them to do this? Why did he tell them to be strong in the Lord and basically to put on the whole armor of God? I'm, I'm pretty sure the reason why he did that was because he understood. He knew, and obviously, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew that it would not be easy for the Ephesians uh, to believe what has been stated, if you will, about them in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It would not be easy for them to believe who they are, to trust in what God has done for them, nor would it be easy to walk in a manner worthy of their high calling. So it's like he wraps up the entire book of Ephesians with this great section that we're going to look at, realizing that, okay, this is who you are and this is what you're to do, knowing that it would not be, e knowing in layman terms that it, the Christian life would not be easy. That's exactly what he aims to do here. He knew that I need to talk to them about something so significant and important because it has to do with how well they're going to do with understanding and living these things out. I have to tell them about this subject that we're going to look at. MacArthur said this. He said, the faithful Christian life is a battle. It is warfare on a grand scale because when God begins to bless, Satan begins to attack. If we are walking worthy of our calling, 
in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in the new self rather than the old self, in love rather than lust, in light rather than darkness, in wisdom rather than foolishness, in the fullness of the spirit rather than in drunkenness of wine, and in mutual submission rather than self-serving independence, then we can be absolutely certain we will have opposition and conflict. What he's basically saying is that, okay, if you believe what God has stated about you, what you have, who you are in Christ, and you begin to live those things out, you begin to humbly acknowledge those things and then to live those things out, all hell is going to break loose. You're going to have a hard time. The Christian life is not going to be easy for you. It's going to be really, really tough. And if you think about it, just in terms of logic, the devil ain't concerned about people who are doing his will. He's concerned about those who are fighting against his will. So when we make a conscious effort in the power of the Spirit to live out and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to even believe what has been stated about us, everything out there is going to come against us. And that is essentially why he wrote this text that we're going to begin to look at. He understood the battle that lies ahead for those whom desire and pursue faithfulness to the Lord. As I said, it's not going to be, the devil doesn't care about what you're doing if you're already serving him. He's not going to come against you. He's just going to keep feeding you the pez. But if you say no to the devil and you say yes to righteousness in these things, then he is going to bring everything he has against you. And that is essentially why he wrote this passage. Now, many Christians today would judge the teaching of these verses, this whole section that we're going to be looking at in the next two weeks, they would judge it unimportant. They would say, this, there's no relevance here. It's, it, there's no purpose for it for the believer. They would encourage us to think positively and peacefully as if there were no spiritual battles at all. Uh, they see Christianity not as an entrance into warfare, but as an exit from it. They see it as a solution to our problems. You know, if you're sick, Jesus will make you well. If you're discouraged, Jesus will make you happy. You get the impression from those who talk like this... Uh, talk like this, that to believe in Jesus is to enter upon a smooth path and to enjoy smooth sailing. <laughs> Another approach to the Christian life does not so much deny the reality of spiritual warfare as insist that, although it exists, it is all over and done with in a certain sense. A reasonably well-known Christian theologian from China named Watchman Lee, you might be familiar with who he is, um, he wrote a study guide to Ephesians where he describes the Christian life as sitting, walking, and standing. The Christian life begins by, this is his theology on the Christian life, the Christian life begins by sitting with Christ in the heavenly places. He bases that on Ephesians 2.6. Continues by walking out the Christian life, Ephesians 4.1, right? Walk in a manner worthy. Finally, it involves standing on ground Christ has already won for us, Ephesians 6.11, and then obviously verses 13 to 14. Watchman Nee emphasizes that because of Christ's victories, our warfare is always defensive and never offensive. Now the trouble with this view is that it suggests that there is nothing or very little for us to do as Christians. I mean, if Christ has just won all the battle and all that, and we don't have to do anything but just kind of rest in his, in his accomplishments and his victories, we're not called to fight or anything like that. All we have to do is be ready when the attacks come and have a good defense. But for the most part, there's, there, we're never to be aggressive. We're never to actively seek out or fight against or do any of those things because it's all Christ. And so we just kind of sit and walk and stand on the ground that Christ has already won for us. And I, I think there's some truth to that. But I don't think it's entirely accurate because it produces this attitude. Let go and let God. You've heard that statement, right? Okay, I know, Sally, you're in the midst of, of, of great struggle and great difficulty and all that. You just need to learn to let go and let God. I've heard that. That is, the battle is not ours, it's God's. Have anyone ever told you that? Well, you're in the midst of something grand and it's not you. It's the Lord's battle, so let him fight for you. You know, just, just let go, let God do the fighting. All we have to do is stand our ground, but the battle belongs to the Lord. 
I'm just reminded there that the battle belonged to the Lord the whole time during the Old Testament and all the interactions that the Israelites had with the Canaanites and everyone else. But did you ever not see the Israelites out with weapons fighting? Hello? I don't understand where Watchman Nee comes up with this stuff. Now, it is true that Paul uses the word stand several times in this passage, three or four. But when he speaks of our armor, he speaks not only of defensive armor, such as our helmet, breastplate, and shield, but also of our offensive, offensive weapon, our sword. A sword can be used for blocking, right? You can use it to block another sword or, or certain things. If you're in Hollywood, you can use it to block bullets, right? You, it can be used for blocking, but it can also be used for what? Slashing, plunging, inflicting massive damage on a foe. A sword can be used two ways. This, of course, means that our armor in the Christian life is not merely defensive, but it is also offensive. It is offensive. And the truth is, every Christian is called to be a soldier for the Lord, right? 2 Timothy 2.3. And, and I think we all know that soldiers do more than defend, don't they? They also aggressively take the battle to their enemies. They do. So we have already, and that's kind of where we're headed here. We have already read our main text. Let's pray one more time, and then, and then we'll get to work, okay? Lord, uh, I just pray that, that we would all realize right now, and the phenomenon is, is that the Christian life isn't easy, that there is a major, major spiritual battle that's playing out, and that uh, so often we attribute our difficulty and the challenges that we're facing or in the midst of to the wrong thing. We don't attribute those things to spiritual warfare. We don't attribute it to the right thing. And so I love the fact that under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit that you had Paul write this text so that we would know why the Christian life is so hard, why it's difficult, why it's challenging, why it's challenging for us to even believe what has been stated about us in the clear teachings of Scripture, why it is difficult for us to live those things out, why it is difficult for us to submit to our husbands and for us to love our wives and for children to obey their parents and for you know, employees to obey their employers and employers to treat their employees as they want to be treated. All that you have listed in this text, it becomes so difficult at times. And the grand question is why, and you have given us answers in the next several verses, and we thank you for that. Open our hearts and minds to it. Maybe, maybe someone in here today doesn't realize even as a believer, they don't realize the kind of warfare they're involved in. And may we realize that uh, also that, uh, as Watchman Lee said, that it's not just, or Watchman Nee said, it's not just defense. There is an offensive component to our faith. And so uh, just open our minds to the truth. Speak to us and be glorified in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we could just wrap it up right there and pray and just head out of here, right? I feel like that's good, but not really. Uh, verse 10, take a look at verse 10 with me. He says this, okay, again, after talking about who we are, what we have, after talking about how we're to live and all of that, he begins with this word, finally. Like, okay, finally, I've said all these things to you, finally, now I really want you to pay attention. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, he says. So the first thing we notice here is that we need strength for the battle. You just think about it. You're not going to be able to stand your ground. And you can even put this in physical terms. If you have a bunch of soldiers that are out on the battlefield and they're all very weak from malnutrition and all these things, you're not going to do a very good job of standing their ground and repelling the enemy as they're trying to enter the fortress. Same thing goes to, for us in spiritual terms. We have to have strength for the battle. We're not going to be able to stand our ground against the foes that he's going to list in a few verses here. We're not going to be able to stand our ground if we don't have strength. You have to have strength to be able to defend, you have to have strength to be able to put together a good offense. If you are weak, the enemy will run you through. The enemy will plow right over you. So the first thing we notice is that, that he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. You gotta have strength. 
Second of all, where does this strength come from? Does it come from us? No, it doesn't come from us. It comes from the Lord. It's the strength of his might. Paul wrote that exactly as the strength of his might. He didn't say it's the strength of our might. It's the strength of all of your studying and your reading and your praying. And now you've got your own personal strength. Now you need to be strong in yourself in the strength of your might. And I wonder how often it is that we feel so defeated and we're not doing so well in this battle that wages around us and it's on our front door and it's even in our own minds at times. And I wonder how often the reason why we're failing or the reason why we're defeated is because we're not operating in the Lord's strength. That we're depending on ourselves. We're depend- I don't know about you. I have no strength. I have no spiritual strength on my own. I barely have any physical strength right now. Thank you, time change. Thank you, late night. The very first thing that we've got to realize here is that you need strength. It takes strength to plow forward and to endure and to make progress in the Christian life. Without strength, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to get anywhere, technically speaking. Now, we have to ask the question, how is this strength that he mentions here in this beautiful verse, how is it appropriated to us? How is the strength of the Lord, how do we receive the strength of the Lord? How do we get it? Well, I'll tell you how you get it. You get it through the means of grace that God has prescribed. You get it through prayer. You got to be praying. You pray for the Lord's strength. You pray in the spirit. You don't have to have a scripted prayer. You just pray, Lord, strengthen me. I'm weak. I'm feeble. I can't make any strides forward. I'm being attacked from all sides. I, I, don't, I, I don't even know how I'm standing at all. Maybe it's your strength. Give me more strength to endure. Give me more strength to plow forward. Give me more strength to defend. Give me your strength. So you pray. You seek the Lord. You, act, you acknowledge that you're weak and that he alone is strong. And you cry out to him for that strength. Do you think he's going to deny his child who calls out to him for his strength? Sorry, I just don't have any muscle for you today. You also do it through knowledge of the word, which obviously means you're going to have to get in the scripture. You're going to have to read scripture. You're going to have to meditate on scripture. You're going to need to pray in the scripture. You need the scripture. The scripture is God's word to us, and it's come to us through power. It contains power. Strength of the Lord, of his might is found in the scripture and what he has declared and what he has done. I mean, just go back and read the creation account in Genesis, you know, chapter 1 and 2, and you'll see the Lord's power and strength in bringing all things into existence. And you got to get into the scripture. And I'll tell you what's equally important to not only just praying and getting into the scripture, one of the key things is obeying scripture. Some of you might be saying to yourself, well, I call out to the Lord for his strength all the time, and I read the, the Bible all the time, but you know, maybe the reason why you're weakened and defeated is because you're not doing your very best in the power of the Holy Spirit to obey the word. Like you hear sermons and you read scripture and you go, okay, that's interesting, and you really don't do anything with it. Because that happens, does it not? I can tell you, I write the sermons, and I know exactly what I am and am not doing, and uh, there are times where it's just head knowledge or it's just fun, it's exciting, it's interesting, and, but I'm not really taking it seriously and I, I'm not even trying to practice what I preach. Obedience to the word is huge. In fact, this whole section is contingent on that because he starts talking about, he starts talking about putting on the armor. Putting on means that we actually have to do something. We, he doesn't put the armor on us as we sit there and go, okay, put it on me. It doesn't magically appear on you. You actually have to physically obey the scripture where he says put it on, know what it is, and then begin to put it on. You have to put it on. You have to obey. And I tell you what, that just has to do with the whole word itself. You've got to obey what God tells us to do. You're not going to have the strength. You're not going to have the Lord's strength appropriated to you if you're not in the habit of obeying his word. And, and because you're not obeying his word, that's why you're weak Because somehow something mysterious and supernatural happens when we actually obey the word. We're strengthened in our inner man, inner woman, in our spirit. Another thing, so you've got what? You've got prayer, you've got knowledge of the word that's reading and study and all that. Then you've got obedience, you've got to obey it. And then you have faith, believing in the promises of God. 
I'm telling you, that it's, it's such a unique thing. He's got all these promises in the scripture. And when you read those promises and you begin to believe through the power of the Holy Spirit, those promises, you become strengthened because you realize that God follows through. He comes through. He always, uh, you know, if he makes a promise, there's such a great pattern in scripture of him fulfilling those promises. In fact, he's never failed at fulfilling any of them. Some of them have yet to be fulfilled. But God has a perfect track record. And so when you look at scripture and you look at his promises, and then you look at the fulfillment of those promises a little later on, or like if you're reading in Isaiah and then like 800 years later you see Jesus, fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 53 and a number of other ones, you can see that God is trustworthy and that you can believe and trust in his promises, thus believing and trusting in him who is faithful, who follows through. And if you're trusting and believing in God, who is you know, omnipotent, all-powerful, you get that power from him. You get that strength from him. The Christian who, who, who prays and who, who, who gets into the word and who obeys, does their best to obey, and who, who believes in the promises of God will become strong in the Lord. Will have the strength of his might. And so you've just got to ask yourself now, if you're weakened and if you're constantly defeated, you need to ask yourself, why is that? And, and I get it, there's a flesh component. Our bodies are failing. You know, each day we're dying so that we can go be with the Lord and live forever. You know, I get it. We, there's a physical weakness and all that too. We're talking about spiritual things here. And I'm telling you, I think the spiritual aspect of it transcends all things. I think the spiritual aspect of who we are has to do with our physical strength and every other form of strength that we have. The, phys- the spiritual affects every aspect of who we are. But you need to ask yourself, okay, I'm weakened, I'm stumbling in sin all the time, I'm doing all these things. Are you doing these four things? Because if you're not, you're going to be weak. You're, going, you're not going to have the strength of the Lord. You're going to be weak, you're going to be timid, you're going to be fearful, you're going to be spiritually impotent. Paul's protege, Timothy, went through this. Hard to believe, right? You know, the first and second Timothy letters. Timothy went through this. After several years of ministry, he became fearful and timid. Uh, he faced, I believe, if you read the letters to him, he faced stronger temptations than he had expected and considerably more opposition. No pastor like Timothy anticipates all, the, all of the opposition that he's going to uh, face and experience. And if he had the foreknowledge and ability to do that, he probably wouldn't go through seminary and become a pastor. If he knew that it was going to be just really, really hard and difficult, he would probably say, I think I'd be better off flipping fish at Long John's, which was my first job. I mean, ministry's not easy. The Christian life is certainly not easy. Now, this guy faced a lot. He dealt with a lot. And, and I don't think he, I think he underestimated as every pastor does. And he became fearful and somewhat timid, maybe even defeated in a sense. Paul wrote this to him. He said, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 7. Paul didn't instruct him to pray and to do all these things like I'm telling you to do or like God is telling you to do now, but for the most part, you need to know that the Christian life is filled with difficulty, but you are filled with power, the very power of God. And and the way that that strength of the Lord is appropriated to us is through the means of grace, the very things that he has given to us as grace gifts, and that's prayer, and that's the scripture. And I would say, even add to that the fellowship of the saints, because when you're together with other believers, we strengthen each other, don't we? Some of us beat each other down, which is pretty unfortunate. Christians are the only ones I've ever seen out there that actually shoot their wounded while they're laying bleeding on the battlefield. Makes no sense to me whatsoever. But for the most part, the fellowship consists of strengthening one another, imparting the Lord's strength to one another. So fellowship is a huge thing, too. So that's how it's appropriated to us. We're not going to get anywhere in this fight. We're not going to get anywhere in this battle if we don't have the Lord's strength. We need it, and it's appropriated to us through the means of grace. So what do we need to do? We need to engage those things. And we need to do it, I would say, consistently. If you're a a one-day-a-week Bible reader, become a a two-day-a-week Bible reader. 
just add, I mean, baby steps, just add some scripture reading to you, add some prayer. And I would probably say the most challenging area for all of us, maybe me, is prayer. I don't spend enough time in prayer. And so we need to just increase what you're already doing. If you're not doing anything at all, add it. Add it to you. Okay. Becoming strong in the Lord. Know this. Becoming strong in the Lord through his strength is the starting point. Notice how he begins this entire section on spiritual warfare with that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That's the starting point. He doesn't talk about putting on the armor or doing anything else before he talks about strength. You got to have strength. You got to have the strength of the Lord. It comes first. Think about it. Without the Lord's strength, how will you be able to put on and bear the weight of God's armor? A little frail, chihuahua-like guy is not going to be able to put on the load, you know, heavy load, awesome armor of God that's meant for battle. How can you put it on? You can't, you're not even going to be able to hold the weight of it, so to speak. I would say this, no strength, no armor. No armor, no victory. That's where he's going here. No strength, then you can't have the armor, and if you don't have the armor, there's no way to have victory. Because if you don't have the armor on, you are susceptible. You will be injured. You will be wounded. Because you don't have anything to defend yourself with. Not to mention that you won't be able to capture any beachhead because you don't have a weapon to fight with. No strength, no armor, no armor, no victory. It's that simple. And that's why he begins with the strength of the Lord in verse 10. Now look at 11 with me. Put on the whole armor of God. Here it is. Following the strength. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Wow. In order to take advantage of the strength of the Lord's might, a Christian must also put on the whole spiritual armor he supplies. That's an act of our obedience, putting on the armor, obeying what he says in this text. Put is enduo in Greek, and it carries the idea of permanence. Put doesn't mean just put it on Tuesday and then take it off on Tuesday night and then, you know, go a couple days without it or something like that. It's not a temporary thing at all. What Paul is saying here with the word, Greek word enduo is put it on and keep it on. Don't take it off. Don't, don't, don't strip off parts of it. Don't take off the helmet. Put has to do with putting it on and keeping it on. Now this says something about the nature of our warfare, doesn't it? If our armor is permanent, then our warfare must also be ongoing and somewhat permanent, at least on this side of glory. Our warfare, beloved, as Christians, never, there's never a ceasefire. Although you might feel there's times of peace and all that, and, and all that, you don't feel like you're under attack, but the, the war is waging at all times. It, 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 there's no stopping. The only time it's going to stop is when the Lord comes back. So if there's a permanence to putting on and keeping on the armor, then that must mean the battle is constantly waging. There's no time where we're supposed to take it off like a football uniform. We don't put it on to play the game, and then when the game's over, we take it off and put it in the locker, and we go take a shower and go back to business as usual. The fact is, as soon as you take it off, the flaming darts and everything else, you're getting nailed. We put it on, and we keep it on. MacArthur said this, he said, the armor of God is to be the Christian's lifelong companion. He doesn't even call it a uniform or dress or an outfit or an ensemble. It is a lifelong companion. He says it provides believers with divine power from who? Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It says that Jude, and there's only one chapter, so that's verse 24. Now, I think the thing that's interesting about this, just a little nuancey thing, is that when Paul wrote this text, the whole book of Ephesians and a couple other prison letters, he was in prison. And he was chained to a Roman guard. And the Roman guard was likely wearing armor. 
So he's probably using this as a, like he's writing and thinking through these things, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's looking at the armor. He's, he's looking at his guard intently and looking at his sword and looking at his shield and looking at, you know, the leather armor and all that. So he's got kind of a living illustration going right before his very eyes. And he likens the Christian battle and warfare to armor. And he associates each piece of the Roman guard's armor to a piece of God's armor. It's pretty amazing what he's doing here. Now let's look at some of the key phrases. To stand against. To stand against. That's a military term. It has to do with holding a critical position while under attack. Kind of reminds me of that awesome, awesome, awesome scene in the movie 300 where Leonidas and his 300 Spartan warriors were defending a small inlet that led to Sparta. He was defending a small inlet against Xerxes, right? The, what was he, the Persian invader, right? I mean, you've got 300 guys or so and this bloody, crazy battle and there's small inlet they're trying to get, into, get through the pass to get to you know, his hometown to destroy it. And you've got these guys defending. They're, they're holding a fixed position. Now, obviously, they were eventually killed and ran through, but I think they even went around and flanked him. But that's actually a, apparently it's a true historical event that took place. I think it's the Battle of Thermopylae. But you get the idea there of those soldiers and those Spartans standing their ground, you know, and holding a position while the enemy is just constantly coming against, arrayed against them and coming and coming and coming, and they're standing their ground. and They're not leaving that line and going out there and being aggressive because then the line breaks and they get through. They're sitting over the shields. The arrows are coming and all that. So it has this idea of, of, of standing against, very similar to what you see in that movie. It is a military term. And then also the schemes of the devil... Schemes is a methodia in Greek. It's where we get the word method from. Uh, here it denotes craftiness, cunning, and deception. Uh, the term was often used of a wild animal who cunningly stalked and then unexpectedly pounced on its prey. The first thing that comes to mind to me is a, is a leopard. We were watching a nature show the other day, and you know this little impala or gazelle is sitting under this tree grazing. It has no idea what's above it in the tree. We only know because there was a camera there. But I can tell you this, if I was taking a little sun break under that tree, I would have had no idea that giant cat was above me either. And next thing you know, woof, it's on it. Got its throat, you know, in its mouth, and that, it's done. Like a leopard. Like a leopard, the devil's schemes are built around stealth and deception. Now what are these schemes that, that, that Paul is referring to? What are the devil's schemes, if you will? I'll tell you, the great... Puritan divine William Grinnell wrote an incredible book about this subject entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. It's like 1,200 pages. It's exhaustive on this subject, and it is phenomenal. And, and in that book, he exposes many of Satan's or the devil's schemes. And I've got six things for you that basically come from that book. Number one would be the devil attacks when the Christian is newly converted. So one of his schemes is to come against a newly converted Christian. The early days of our Christian lives are glorious, right? I remember mine. They were pretty insane. Before our conversion, we were dead in transgressions and sins. Now we are alive. Before, our minds were darkened by the evil spirit of this world. Now we see spiritual things clearly. Before, we did not desire fellowship with God. Now we do. Before, we were discouraged. Now we are filled with optimism and great joy. That's the Christian life when you first get saved. But then the devil comes. When, like Eve, we are not yet confirmed in any strong path of obedience. Now, we're excited, and we're exhilarated, and we're pursuing the Lord, but, you know, we don't really, it's like, it's, we're just barely getting our feet wet, and we're not, like, on a solid path of obedience, and knowing, a perfect example was with me, like, the first six, seven months of me being saved, I, I was still on the computer looking at pornography, and then I got convicted and left that destructive path. Doesn't mean that I was any less saved, I was saved, I just really wasn't on a good, strong path of obedience, and I didn't understand some of those things yet. I was like Eve in the garden, in a sense. We all are when we first get saved. The devil comes, and what does he do? He trips us up. And then he says, I see by your sin that you're not a Christian at all. 
You can't be a Christian, Phil, and look at pornography. You can't be a Christian and do these things or these things. You can't still be speaking like a sailor in the Gulf. You can't do that. So, therefore, you're not a believer. This is what he does to us. He tells us when we first get saved and we're really struggling with sin, or maybe we're not struggling with sin yet. We've still got some things going on there that are kind of looming and we're not really opposed to them yet. He, he tells us your conversion, because look at your life. Your conversion was only temporary. Or you have fallen away. You have left the faith. Really wasn't real to begin with, but you have stepped away from these things. And then he begins to whisper to us, you may as well just calm down and just go back to following me. That's the best path for you. It's the path of least resistance. This is a legitimate thing that the devil does. It's one of his schemes against new believers. He tries to nail us on every sin and convince us that we were never converted. It's what he does. That's one of his schemes. Secondly... The devil attacks when the Christian is afflicted. Not just converted, but afflicted. When things go well, the devil frequently leaves us alone. But when we go through times of affliction, as most of God's children do from time to time, the devil is often quickly there to suggest that God has abandoned us or that we are not really his children. He whispers, if God loved you, he wouldn't let you suffer like this. He wouldn't have taken your mother. He wouldn't have let your husband walk out on you. He wouldn't have done this. He wouldn't have done that. He would not. If he loved you like he says, he's a God of love. He's not a God of love. He's a God of hate. He would have never given you cancer. He struck you with cancer because he hates you. These are things that the devil says to us. If God is good, he wouldn't put you through this. So you may as well curse him and sin as you please what the devil does when we're afflicted wasn't job tempted like this although the tempting words were channeled through his friends and wife you know god had permitted the devil to destroy job's wealth and family and then to afflict him with boils even hammered him physically to show that job loved god for who he is rather than for what he had given him that was the point the devil says he just loves you because you blessed him with all this stuff beyond that he doesn't care about you and God says, okay, go ahead and take all these things away from him. And you can do anything to him that you want, but kill him, and you will see that he loves me beyond what I have provided for him. That was the test. But when Job lost these things, possessions, children, and good health, the devil was there to speak through his friends who kept insisting that it was because of some deep hidden sin in Job's life. Have you ever had someone do that to you? You're going through a nightmare, and somebody comes to you and says, well, you, you've probably done something wrong, and you need to repent of it. It's probably because you have ongoing sin in your life, and you haven't confessed it. That's exactly what Job's friends did to him for nearly 40 chapters. I, Job was probably next to Jesus, the most patient man in Scripture. Because on day two, I, there, I would have been getting murder charges. I mean, if somebody keeps coming to me and saying it's because you have sin, it's because you have sin, it's because you have sin, right? This is a moral universe, and that's the way that it works. God punishes every sin, and you have sin, and that's why you have boils, and that's why your wife went off in that direction, and that's why the house fell in on your kids and all your camels got ripped off, because you need to confess your sin. The devil was whispering that to him through his friends. He was also whispering to him that, hey, you know what? You're not a righteous man. You can't be a righteous man. As I said, this is a moral universe. Bad things don't happen to good people. That's essentially what his friends were telling him. They were also saying to him, so if, Job, it's a moral universe and bad things don't happen to good people, good things happen to good people. These guys were like early Pharisees. And their whole angle was, so if bad things are happening to you, Job, it is because you have done something terrible, whether you realize it or not. God is punishing you. His wife was even more outspoken, right? She said, after all this, after losing, look at you. You are a bloody pussy mess. All our children are gone. All our possessions are gone. After all of this, you're still trying to hang on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. The bigger curse was the wife. Boy, if you're married to a wife like that, guys, uh, I've got counseling here during the week. 
Just curse him and be done with it. You know, well, I thought you were supposed to be like evenly yoked and you're to be encouraging me to stand on my integrity. And, and, and no, just get it over with. God has left us. He, he's left the building. He has nothing to do with us. But see, these are, these are a schemes of the devil presented through people and sadly through people whom we trust and love because he uses anything he can, especially those whom we trust and love. Three, the devil attacks when the Christian has achieved some notable success. This was Peter's experience, okay, right? The believer, the Christian, achieves some kind of notable success. It happens, right? This was Peter's experience. Jesus had asked the disciples who they thought he was, and Peter had responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This was a phenomenal insight. So great, in fact, that Jesus immediately explained its source, saying, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven, Jesus went on in that same dialogue or in that same teaching. He, he was continued speaking and he went on to describe his coming death and resurrection. But Peter, riding high on his good performance, tried to persuade Jesus that his death was unnecessary, which brought about a stinging rebuke. Did it not? Get behind me, Satan. You know not the things of God. You're speaking the things of man. So Peter has this successful theological conversation. He gets... Man, you're the Christ, and, and really, I think he's the first one in the New Testament to even acknowledge Jesus in this way at this point. So this is a massive, notable success, if you will, and immediately following it, he gets demolished by a stinging rebuke from the Lord because he starts speaking on behalf of Satan. I'm reminded of, of the Israelites, you know, taking of Jericho. On day two, they got slammed by Ceres, A.I., a notable success, victory at Jericho. And then we go to fight a city that's not even in comparison to Jericho and they get absolutely hammered because the devil led Achan to steal. The devil attacks when a Christian has achieved some notable success. When, when progress is made for the very kingdom of God, the devil comes with schemes. He does. Which means that if you're growing to be like Jesus and you're walking in obedience, I would call that notable success, which means the devil's going to be unleashing scheme after scheme on you. Number four, the devil attacks when the Christian is idle. This is a devastating one. Idle hands are the devil's workshop, says Proverbs 16, 27. Think of King David. Idleness. Think of King David's idleness and his great sin with Bathsheba. David was supposed to be on the battlefield with his general Joab. He was supposed to be at war. His nation was at war. He was supposed to be out there as the commander-in-chief, if you will, as the king leading the fight. That's what they did back in those days. They didn't sit behind in some kind of a control room and push buttons or make phone calls. They went out on the battlefield. And instead of being out on the battlefield with Joab and his soldiers, he was taking some time off to sandbag and drink wine and eat grapes and have people fan him with big palm branches and, you know, sleep in all day and party. And that's pretty much what he was doing. And one evening, he gets up out of bed at about 6 p.m. So you get the idea, right? 6 p.m., that's when you woke up? Reminds me of me when I was about 17. Time for the night. He gets up and he goes out on his terrace and he's just, he notices a beautiful woman bathing. They used to bathe on the rooftops, believe it or not. They had flat roofs. That's where they bathed. And he notices maybe down below in a, in a home down below, he sees this beautiful woman naked bathing. Hey, 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 servants, fetch her for me. And they said, well, dude, that's like one of your primary soldiers. That's Uriah's wife. You don't want anything to do with her. She's married and that's, that's one of your mighty men. Don't, don't have anything to do with her. I said, fetch her for me. Okay. They go down and get her, and she comes upstairs, and they lay together, and she gets pregnant. and He has to figure out a way to cover up his sin and, and the adultery and the pregnancy, and so he devises a bunch of devilish schemes to try to get Uriah to take ownership over the baby, trying to put them together and all that. He runs out of options. Eventually, he has Uriah moved to the front of the battle lines where he's struck by an enemy archer and killed. And then he takes her to be his wife. The baby dies. Idle hands. 
idleness. The devil comes when we are idle, when we are not busy with the things of the Lord or busy with anything. I think there's a scripture that talks about if a man doesn't have anything to do, I will give him something to do, is what the devil says. I'll make sure I keep him busy. And does he not? Five, the devil attacks when the Christian is isolated from other believers, other Christians. When we are with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are with those who can encourage, help, and if necessary, call us to account. Generally, if we are in such company, the devil recognizes that his time can be better spent elsewhere. But when we get away from other Christians, or worse yet, get in close, intimate contact with non-Christians, the devil comes. He whispers, I see you are finally away from those hypocrites who have been stopping you from having any fun. Now you can do what you want to do. And they won't even know about it. And this is why I think we're warned, in, uh, we're warned not to forsake the weekly worship or gatherings at church, the gathering of the saints in Hebrews 10.25. Doing so puts us in harm's way. We need each other. We do. And, and one of the great connect points is weekly worship. We need each other. And in Hebrews 10.25 it says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints. Do not be in the habit of doing what other Christians do. Make sure you come to church. Make sure you're with your brothers and sisters. And I'll tell you why. Because when we come together, we form an army. We are an army of like-minded, Lord-pursuing, the Lord-pursuing people. There is strength in Christian numbers. But when we are alone, we are like the lone survivor on an Afghan hillside with no ammo and with Taliban forces coming in from all directions. I can tell you this right now. The litmus test for a weak, for a weak believer, male or female, will be whether they're at church regularly or not. Just check their attendance. Because I can tell you, the pattern is those who do not take church seriously are not there with the fellowship and the teaching and all that. They are weak. In fact, they, their lives look more pagan than they look Christian. You cannot forsake the gathering. You've got to do it. And I'm praising the Lord that you guys are all here this morning. Seriously, it's so important that we come together and we're with our brothers and sisters because together we form an army. Isolated, we're a single soldier that really doesn't have what it takes to defend or offend. Six, the devil attacks when the Christian is dying. Death is a time of physical weakness, at least if it doesn't come abruptly. And the devil uses physical weakness to afflict us, doesn't he? Grinnell wrote, At the hour of death, when the saint is down and prostrate in his bodily strength, now this coward falls upon him. As the saint steps into eternity, the devil treads upon his heel, not to trip him, but to hinder, because the devil can't stop us from entering, not to trip him, but to hinder his arrival to bruise, to bruise his heel so that he may go forth with more pain. I'm telling you, man, there's going to come a day when we're about to breathe our last breath and step into eternity in the blissful presence of our Lord, but it's probably not going to be an easy transition because that is when the devil strikes the believer. He comes and he speaks untruth and falsity, and he tries to hurt us even more as we go out, as to cause us to doubt where we're headed. That's what he does. That's six ways. Look at verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Phrases again, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, what Paul is saying here is that the battle we are in as Christians is primarily spiritual. It is not against flesh and blood or people per se. Now, he was not denying human conflict because we do wrestle with people at times, don't we? Can I get an amen? We do. He was not denying the existence in the Christian life of wrestling with flesh and blood. Some people say, well, it just doesn't have anything to do with that person. It has to do with just the devil behind them. Well, that's true in a sense, but it's also false. What he's saying here is that our struggle is not just on the human level, but on the spiritual well level as well. That's what he's saying. Our, wealth, our, our welfare, our warfare does include, it does include, beloved, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with people at times. It does. But not physically, 
with physically, physical weaponry or physical violence. That's not the way we do it. We are to use the truth to combat secular godless beliefs, words, and actions. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. How are we to understand the nouns that occur in verse 12? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. Let's go over them. Rulers. Paul is thinking regionally here. What he means is that the devil has appointed key demons to serve as rulers over certain regions throughout the world. Similar to how a king, or maybe a president, presidents aren't supposed to rule, but similar how to how a king would rule over his country. A king is appointed or basically comes up through a bloodline to rule over a certain area. And the devil has structured his leadership in such a way that you have key demons that oversee certain districts or areas or continents. And I think this is so true because there are some continents or countries out there where you can tell there's a, there's a hierarchy, but there's a high leader there because of how much wickedness and evil there is in that place. And I'm, I'm thinking of, I can't think of the name of it right now, but where all the witchcraft is that just got nailed by that earthquake. Where was that? It was next to Dominican Republic. What's it called? You know? Huh? Yes. Haiti. That, that, that country is so wicked, you almost get the sense that there's probably a direct demon ruler right there in that area infecting that whole country. I don't know. It sure seems like it. But rulers are those who, who control or who lead regionally. Then you have authorities. Authorities appears to be another class of demons, but I don't think that's what Paul meant. Authorities is linked to Ephesians 2.2, which has to do with a set of ungodly values known as the course of this world. So when Paul speaks of authorities, he is saying that the values of our culture, as well as a specific territory, are demonically controlled. Now we need to see the dominant values of our culture, the me-first philosophy, pleasure for its own sake, materialism, and other things, are not Christian, but are controlled and manipulated by the devil for his own base ends. And so I don't think authorities is another class of leadership. I think it's philosophical idea, I think it's a set of values and all that that are demonic. And we see that so clearly here in our country. Cosmic powers, this has to do with control. The cosmic powers are those who control what people think and do. They are behind, and I'll tell you this, they are behind the secular media. They are behind secular education. They are behind our nation's secular politicians and leaders who all together, literally, all of them together, the secular media, the politicians, the leadership, the educational system, all of it that's secular and godless, those cosmic powers behind all of that, and they all together control so much of our contemporary moral ethos. Hollywood is a demonic stronghold where these cosmic powers control many of the actors, actresses, producers, directors, movie makers, and so on. Would we all agree? Look at what they produce. There are cosmic powers at work in Hollywood. The majority of our college campuses are demonic strongholds where these cosmic powers work through secular professors and teachers who are constantly trying to influence and secularize our young people. Those are two examples of where these cosmic powers are at work. Some would probably argue that they're at work in our Congress, and I would say amen to that. What are the spiritual forces of evil that he lists here? This, again, does not appear to be another category of demons, but the end result. The devil and his rulers and his cosmic powers together make up, right? All together make up the spiritual forces of evil. That's, that's just another name for the devil and his minions and, and all that he is and what he does. That's just a kind of a generic name for that. The spiritual forces of evil. Again, another key phrase, in the heavenly places, that reminds us that the spiritual forces of evil are invisible because they exist in an invisible realm, the spiritual realm. But anyone who denies their existence because they're invisible is a fool because we can see their work and influence very plainly, can we not? I just gave you a couple examples. Public education, preferably college, Hollywood. What you see coming out of Hollywood should anger you, but you should realize that it's purely demonic. It's by the cosmic powers that these things are happening. Some would say common core is demonic. <laughs> I don't know. I know my kids are doing it, and they think it's from hell. Um, also, notice the repetition in verse 12 with me, if you will. 
Paul wrote, we do not wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil. He inserted the word against three additional times. Okay, if you're an English person, you're probably thinking, why did he do that? He should have just said against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. That would be the right way to state that, I would think, grammatically. That would be more in line with the writing standards of his day, because writing was pretty important then, and certainly in our day. But I'll tell you what Paul was not concerned about. He was not concerned about writing standards. He was concerned about emphasis. In our warfare, we are not up against a string of things. We are up against multiple enemies, multiple enemies, multiple foes. We are to fight against the rulers, against the authorities, that's values, against the cosmic powers, secular theology and the leadership behind it, and against the spiritual forces of evil, the whole shebang. We are to actively engage and stand our ground against all of them. Let's begin to wrap it up. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to uh, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Before describing the whole armor of God in verses 14 through 20, Paul reminds us of how important the armor is, not only to our offense, but to our defense, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. Withstand means to, it, it, it basically means to resist. That's the translation of it. Withstand means to resist. And that's a defensive thing. We've gotten the idea that there's some offensive action to be done here against those rulers and all that. But here we get the idea that it's defensive too because standing or withstanding means to resist. The only way to resist the schemes, temptations, and traps um, of the spiritual forces of evil against us is to be filled with the Lord's strength and clothed in his armor. And that's Paul's point. The only way that you're going to be able to withstand in the evil day, to stand when the, when the enemy comes and attacks, or when you hear these crazy things in the media and all that, the only way that you're going to be able to stand firm against those things, or to even make an attack against them, you have to be filled with the Lord's strength and wrapped in his armor. The evil day that's mentioned there is not, it's not a particular day when evil comes, though. You don't want to interpret it that way. And some would say, well, you just need to have the armor on so when the enemy comes and all that. No, 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 because he's constantly coming. We're not to be ready for a particular day when it happens. Remember, we have to put the armor on and keep it on. The evil day means every day. That's how it's translated. Evil day means every day. Why? Because since the fall of man, every day has been evil. We are living in evil times. Since the fall of man, the devil has been reigning as a sort of king or prince of the power of the air over the earth. Every day has been evil. And so we are to be, to be able to withstand at all times, every day, all day, every week, every month, every year. We are living in the days of evil. And we must therefore be ready at all times for war. This is, again, as I said, why the armor of God is permanent rather than to be put on like a football uniform and then taken off. When we have done all, as he said, which is become strong in the Lord through his strength and put on the armor of God, then we can do what? What does he say at the end of verse 13? The last two words, stand firm. His point, you're not going to be able to stand firm. You're not going to be able to defend. You're not going to be able to put together an offense unless you have the strength of the Lord and unless you have the armor. You will not be able to do it. Christians, are you having trouble believing what has been stated about you in chapters 1, 2, and 3? That you are chosen, predestined, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, reconciled, a, a citizen, a member in God's household, a dwelling place for God, a fellow heir, a member of the same body, and a partaker of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel? Are you having trouble, Christians, uh, living out chapters 4, 5, and 6, obedience, walking in a manner worthy of your calling, putting off your old self and putting on your new self, steering clear of corrupt talk, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, imitating God, walking in his love, walking in his light, walking in his wisdom, walking in his spirit, 
Wives, submitting to your husbands. Husbands, loving your wives. Children, obeying your parents. Employees, obeying your employers. And employers, treating your employees how you want to be treated. Are you having trouble believing what has been clearly stated about you? Are you having trouble living that stuff out? Could it be that the reason why you disbelieve doctrine and disobey our, your calling, could it be because of our adversary, the devil, that maybe he still has some control over areas of your life and mind? Don't be too quick to attribute these things to the flesh. We have a very powerful adversary who is constantly working to deceive the elect. Satan doesn't have regular folks in his crosshairs. He has believers in his crosshairs because he hates God and he hates us. Do we realize that the devil has arrayed a vast multitude and army of spiritual forces of evil against us? Do we realize that, that we are called to war, but if we do not have the Lord's strength or put on his armor and keep it on, the devil will continue to defeat us? He'll defeat what we believe, and he'll defeat our obedience. Practically speaking, he will continue to hinder our peace, hinder our unity, hinder our marriages, hinder our relationships, and hurt our godly witness evangelism. If you're a married couple and you're having trouble in your marriage, don't blame your spouse alone. You need to know that you have spiritual forces against you that want your marriage to end. The first thing you ought to do in your marriage is pray. Pray for the Lord's strength, pray for the armor of God, then begin to do ministry to your husband or wife. There are spiritual forces at work here, friends. And I say this, last thing, do not give the devil space to operate in your life because if you give him an inch, he'll take 10 miles. This is why Ephesians 4.27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. The only thing, friends, we should be given to the devil is truth. Like Jesus did while he was in the wilderness. The devil came to him with many schemes and temptations, but Jesus hit back at him with the word of God. And what happened? The devil left him. This is a picture of our warfare. That is what standing firm looks like. Amen.